Welcome to Oak Road. My name is Eric. And I'm Michael. And if you want to learn about the secrets of the universe, the law of attraction, mysticism, brohood, gambling, movies, pop culture, archangels, magic, good food, business, health, family, mediumship, and not eating wheat, smash the subscribe button, hit the thumbs up, press the noti icon, and spread this video around like almond butter on lettuce. Okay. I like <laughs> so today we have on Dr. William Davis, number one New York Times bestselling author of Wheat Belly. The doc wrote a new book titled Super Gut. Wrong one, Mike. No, no. Well, I'm, we're, uh, we're talking Wheat Belly for one second, uh, and now uh, we're talking Super Gut. Titled Super Gut, where it covers how to reprogram your microbiome to restore health, lose weight, and turn back the clock. Thank you for coming on, Doc. Thanks, guys, for having me on again. No, it's our pleasure. We're thrilled. Um, yeah, we're, we're so excited to, to talk about this. This is definitely a topic uh, that we want to learn more about, that we have some of our own personal experiences in. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll, I want to jump right in. So in your first chapter, you were talking about just basically how the evolution of people's diets and climate, like we're so far off of our evolutionary diet. Our grandparents lived in a healthier climate, less pollution no ke less chemicals our great great parent great great grandparents lived well into their 80s and 90s my father died at 69. like are we all screwed does it really all pertain to the gut like what's what's the deal here doc you, you make a good point that uh, a healthy microbiome was not that far away probably our grandparents or great grandparents but we have <laughs> managed to muck it up quite dramatically with things that people regard as benign, like salad dressings, the emulsifying agents in salad dressings, the course of antibiotics you might have taken at age three for an inner ear infection, or the uh, diet soda you drank that was sweetened with aspartame. So we're, we're swimming in a sea of factors that have taken the modern microbiome and just completely disrupted it. And one of the things that I focused on specifically is the uh, understanding what microbes have been lost completely lost or nearly lost from all humans that when restored exert some fairly fabulous effects. You, you open the book and I want to expound on what Eric said, because this, these few sentences scared the crap out of me. No pun intended, right? We're going to be doing a lot of shit jokes during this, during this next hour. So there's going to be a lot of crap jokes here. All right, fair he enough. He said, these microbial disturbances can complicate type 2 diabetes, obesity, seizure disorders, and heart and autoimmune diseases. They can also manifest as everyday health phenomena such as anxiety, eczema, insomnia, constipation, and painful menstrual cycles. Evidence increasingly points towards autism and premature menstrual cycles in young girls. Once you learn to recognize these signs, you'll begin to understand that everyone's health, and you italicize everyone's health, issues need to be viewed through the lens of these ubiquitous conditions. Like, everyone I know has, is constipated. Everyone I know has allergies. Everyone, is this all because of the gut, because of gut issues, and not because of environmental factors? Or the, what, what, what's going on here? A lot of it is. There was a discovery that came out of Europe, Belgium, uh, France and Belgium uh, in 2007. It hasn't been talked about much, but it was an earth-shattering discovery. Dr. Patrice Canny uh, validated this idea that, so one of the things that's happened in, in a lot of us is the microbes are supposed to stay largely in the colon, the large bowel, the four or five feet of large bowel, and the 24 feet of upper GI tract, the stomach, duodenum, jejunum, etc., are meant to be largely free of bacteria. There's bacteria normally, but not that many. Well, in modern people, in many of us, a lot of us, the microbes in the colon, these are stool microbes like E. coli and Klebsiella. Uh, also, you, you might recognize them as pathogens. These things are also the um, microbes of food poisoning, Salmonella, E. coli. Well, these microbes have proliferated out-muscled healthy species uh, we've also lost many species, and these unhealthy microbes have ascended up into the 24 feet of small bowel, giving us 30 feet of trillions of microbes that turn over rapidly. You know, they don't live like us, you know, 60, 70, 80 years. They live hours. And so there's rapid turnover of trillions of microbes all the time, 24 hours a day. And when they die, they release some of their byproducts or breakdown products into your bloodstream. 
And that process is called endotoxemia. But it's such an important discovery because it tells us now how microbes living in the GI tract can be experienced as rosacea in the skin right. or psoriasis or as depression from an effect on the brain or as Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinson's disease or as joint pain and swelling of rheumatoid arthritis or as the rhythm disturbance of atrial fibrillation in the heart. In other words, uh, all human disease needs to be reconsidered, redefined in light of participation of the microbiome and in many cases the outright causation of those conditions by the microbiome. Does this start in the mother's womb? Exactly, Eric. Yeah. So sadly, a lot of child women of childbearing age are quite unhealthy nowadays. Ask them. They've got irritable bowel syndrome. They've got painful menstrual cycles, which has implications for the microbiome. Um, they're depressed or anxious. These are all microbiome type symptoms. They deliver a child. Well, mom passes on her microbiome if there's a vaginal delivery. And of course, a third of all deliveries now C-section delivery. Right. But if she manages to deliver her child vaginally, mom is given an antibiotic at time of delivery. Child is given an antibiotic at time of delivery. And so even if she gives her child the full range of a healthy microbiome, it's often not maintained. But mom also often does not have a healthy microbiome to even confer to pass on to her child. And if she breastfeeds, another opportunity, a lot of women don't breastfeed or breastfeed for too short a period. Those are two critical um, issues for a newborn to acquire the microbiome. And as you point out, Eric, that actually the shared microbiome probably starts in utero, in the uterus. Right. It's a controversial topic, just how much and how rich the microbiome is in the uterus. But there is evidence to suggest there is indeed a womb or a uterine microbiome. In, in Supergut, you mentioned that uh, I'm 43 and they're saying I'm going to have to get a colonoscopy in two years. That's like the, you know, the, the standard now is 45. I'm like, all right, that's fine. I'll do what I have to do. And then the, you know, the endo in you, <laughs> in, in Supergut, you're like, well, all right, they're just going to see it's the large colon, right? In for endo, for a colonoscopy is the, the endo. And for the endo is just through the mouth, through the stomach, but they're missing how many feet that they're not seeing? Uh, about 23 feet, 22 feet, <laughs> the, the, the majority of the small, of the, they can't see at all. This becomes a real problem, not just for the microbiome, in many aspects of healthcare. So if, you know, it's not uncommon to have a capillary or a small vessel bleeding, right, you know, right. 15 feet down from the mouth when no scope can reach that. So how do you stop it? How do you cauterize it? How do you identify the source? This is a big problem. The small bowel has always been a problem. But it also means that the microbiome composition of the small bowel, when you do a stool analysis, it's essentially the microbiome of the rectum, right, of the far right. distant colon. And, and it can be very, very different from the microbiome, say, of the jejunum or ileum several right. feet up. So this has been a perennial problem in trying to understand the changes that have occurred in the, in the human microbiome. So are you saying that, like, we should not be taking antibiotics? Are you like against antibiotics or only when absolutely necessary? You know, heaven forbid, Michael's got pneumococcal pneumonia and it's entered his bloodstream. He's got a fever of 140, can't breathe. You need an antibiotic. Right. right? So right. there's a time and place for these things. Or you have a gangrenous wound, right, in a diabetic foot. Take, take the Z-Pack. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a time and place for them. But the, the advent of uh, antibiotics has started in the late 1920s and has since proliferated to include all these wide spec has it's a problem when they're dispensed too widely and too indiscriminately. So I'm sure even you guys have had this happen. You have a viral cough, take this antibiotic just in case. There's a lot of that going on. And of course, this is really done a lot in, in children. It's not uncommon by age 40, around your guys' age, most people have taken 30 courses of antibiotics by age 40. Oh, yes. Of course, Antibiotics are dispensed very freely in children, and this has lifelong implications, and that's why the evidence is becoming clearer and clearer. People who've taken a, a lot of antibiotics tend to be more obese, more uh, likely to have type 2 diabetes, right. autoimmune diseases, depression. I mean, it's a long list of health implications when you knock out the human microbiome. So, I mean, so I'm going to, I'm going to talk about me personally because of my experiences and how you've helped me 
attain my health. Um, so I've had probably a billion sinus infections, mm. all right? a billion, maybe billion one sinus infections throughout my 43 years. It's always been up here, right? It starts as a scratchy throat, goes up here, sneezing green and everything. You know, then I had, I had past tense asthma and I started seeing an alternative doctor, someone much like yourself, someone that, that promotes berberine, right? Someone that promotes quercetin. So people that like think off the beaten path because I kept going to mainstream and all they kept doing is saying, take a Z pack, take, take, um, Cipro, take a Z pack, take, I'm just taking it, taking it, taking yeah. it. Or oh, you can't go to the bathroom. Just take Miralax daily. Right. Right, exactly. You know, are you going too much? Take Pepto, you know? So like just they're throwing stuff at you, but it's not fixing the problem, all right? And then obviously Eric and I, we spoke about this last time, so I don't want to sound redundant about wheat and how wheat was, you know, detrimental to our health. It's been, I'm knocking on wood, two, three years now where we started seeing a, a doctor like yourself. And he put me on a prescription of this. I'm going to read it to you. With vitamin D, 10,000 every other day. So 10,000, 5,000. And my vitamin D level, I think, is 83 or something. Vitamin K2, 100 milligrams, liver pills, methyl B complex, folate and biotin, I alternate that. Digestive enzymes and berberine when I eat a meal. Fish oil, zinc, magnesium and quercetin, I also alternate that. And a probiotic. And I'm not, this is a brand I chose and I'm going to read off to you what's in here. I haven't had a sinus infection in three years. That's great. I haven't had, I, I had to take a, um, an antibiotic for a... Um, uh, for uh, something in my ear, and I found out why I didn't even have an ear infection. I had an irritated ear. <clears throat> why isn't this mainstream? What, what, and again, I'm not promoting what I'm taking that everyone should be taking it. But in your book, in Supergut, you talk about berberine. You talk about fish oil. You talk about not eating wheat and sugar. Why isn't this mainstream? There's a, several reasons. One is, and this is going to sound terribly cynical, but this is the world I came from. I practiced cardiology, interventional cardiology for 25 years. I did 17 years of education training. So I, I've spent many years in the medical system and I, I've heard behind the uh, conference door <laughs> uh, conversations. There is a great bias, and you guys know this, in healthcare to only deliver revenue generating products and procedures. So there's willful ignorance practiced. If let's say an ophthalmologist gets $2,000 every time he makes the useless injections for macular degeneration, over and over and over every day, does he really stop and say, you know what, I need to educate people on ways to avert macular degeneration instead. He's not going to do it. Why would he choke off this rich source of revenue? Same with cardiology. Why, why would my colleague show you how to stop and then regress or reverse coronary disease if they get several thousand dollars every time they put in a couple of stents? And so there's, there's too much of a financial incentive to do to dispense drugs and procedures and willful ignorance, not even bothering to learn. So, you know, what the gastroenterologist should do rather than say, Michael, you need a colonoscopy endoscopy. Right. What you should say is, yeah, there's going to be a time for that perhaps because you did live your first 40 some years, you know, eating things. You were a child, a teenager, you probably ate badly, ate a lot of yes. pizza and et cetera. But the real solution would be not a colonoscopy. It would be let's examine your microbiome composition. Let's push it back towards something healthier that doesn't cause colon cancer. Because we, we know with good confidence now that colon cancer is largely a disease of the microbiome. If you take a diseased microbiome from a mouse and put it in a healthy mouse, it gets colon cancer. Many arrows point in the same direction. So you would think the gastroenterology community would be the champions right. of learning how to rebuild, reconstruct the healthy microbiome, but they're not. Another reality of medical training is that, you know, their education training was probably 18, 20, 25 years ago. Well, the pace of change is so rapid. Now, imagine your software. Uh, engineer says, you know, hey, I was educated. I graduated from software engineering school in 1997. I haven't bothered learning new things since. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know Windows 97. You're in good hands. Is that really <laughs> is that really the state of modern medicine that like you set it and forget it? Yeah, there there is some effort at continuing medical education. That's a whole nother issue, by the way, largely uh, uh, funded by big pharma and the medical device industry. So there's that bias built into continuing medical education. So the actual, a lot of the stuff that comes out is not 
drug related. It's not procedure or device related, like the stuff in the microbiome or the new evidence on vitamin D. As you guys know, vitamin D is hugely powerful for restoring health. So you would think if my colleagues step back and appreciate just how profound the effects of vitamin D, they would be experts in vitamin D. Right. They're rank amateurs and they'll say stupid things like, oh, you got your vitamin D level up to 30. You're good. You can stop the vitamin D now. Quote unquote from what my GP, my former GP said to me, you got up to 36, you're good. In the meantime, I'm, I'm in his office from sinus infections nonstop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I read this great thing. It was actually on TikTok. It was, there's no such thing as flu season from um, uh, October to March in the upper hemisphere of, of America. It's low vitamin D season. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. So getting vitamin D, you know, if nothing else, I don't want to talk about COVID-19, but COVID-19 did serve to illustrate something. Yeah. The profound influence of insulin resistance on health. If you have insulin resistance, whether it's manifest as a blood sugar fasting of 105 or um, somewhat high blood pressure or triglyceride level that's above 60, like maybe 110, which doesn't sound too bad, uh, any evidence of insulin resistance, you are much more likely to die or at least get very sick with viruses such as flu and COVID-19. So this really? idea that insulin resistance is this kind of thing, paper disease that they worry about for no good. No, 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 no. It is a very serious issue that leads over time to very serious outcomes. But that's been uh, uh, very vividly illustrated by the COVID-19 experience. But vitamin D is a wonderful remedy for insulin resistance and uh, to boost your immune system. And by the way, back to the microbiome, that's becoming clear. Some of the things we do with the microbiome dramatically amplify the uh, the immune response. There's one particular observation. Now, this has been seen in animals, has not yet been corroborated in humans. I don't know if we're going to be able to do this clinical trial. It's a little bit complicated. But when you restore one lost microbe, my, my favorite microbe in the world, Lactobacillus reuteri, when you replace it, one of the things that happens is the thymus gland. Thymus sits right here in front of the heart. And when you and I are 15, 15, it reaches its maximal size and ability to produce T cells that are important against viruses, bacteria, and cancers. After age 15, it shrinks such that by age 70, it's about 10% of its former size and ability mm -hmm. to mount an immune response. That's why people die of the flu at age 70 or pneumococcal pneumonia but younger people less likely because the loss of thymic volume and T cell production. Well, at least in experimental models, when you restore rotorite lost by 96% of us, uh, when you give it to a mouse, the th an elderly mouse, the thymus is restored to its youthful size and T cell production. Now we'd like to see that proven in humans too, but we're seeing indirect evidence of the astounding effects of, in this case, restoring rotorite that includes I think a boost in immunity, uh, your appetite is turned off, food still tastes great, but you are in complete and put that on top, by the way, of eliminating the gliadin source opioid peptides that come from wheat and grains. But the um, rotorized turns off your appetite. Uh, you gain back a lot of lost muscle and strength. Cause you know, as we age, we lose about a third of our muscle and strength right. it comes back. Your sleep is deeper. I'm a chronic insomniac. I sleep three, four hours a day and then feel crappy and tired all the next day. I now sleep nine hours straight through deep sleep, vivid dreams. It preserves bone density. And because rotori, what rotori does, takes up resonance in the entire GI tract. And then via the vagus nerve, tells your brain to release oxytocin, the hormone oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy. So when people restore rotori, they say, I like my spouse better. I like my coworkers better. I like my family better. Right. I introduced myself to strangers in line for coffee at Starbucks at a time, putting aside the pandemic, of record-setting social isolation, suicide, divorce. So I think through the microbiome, we've stumbled on something that can change human behavior in the way we interact. People are more likely to say, oh, hey, Michael, I understand your point of view. I might not agree, but I understand why you believe that. It's a much more 
friendly, nice way by restoring a microbe. That's one microbe. So, That's what happens with one microbe. So what's the magic formula? And is it different for everybody? Like, do you have to do a stool sample? And then, you know, because people have sensitivities, they have allergies, like what's, what, what's the course of action that somebody could take to say, I want to lead a healthier lifestyle. And it all starts with my gut. Well, the starting place, unfortunately means that, uh, by my estimation, 100 million Americans, at least that's a conservative estimate. One in wow. three Americans have this overgrowth of bacteria that some call SIBO, small mm -hmm. intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where there's 30 feet of trillions of microbes rapidly turning and endotoxemia. So, uh, you have to address that first. So there's a there's a whole series of steps you can go through to do that. One of the things you can do, people have the option of here we go. Getting this device, it's called the Air device. I, I have it. Oh, good for you. Great. It was it was great, and nothing was high after my meals. I was testing it like religiously, and I did it for six months, and nothing was high. Great. I bet you the berberine wiped out your SIBO. It was, I had to have been berberine was so I real quick. I was on the carnivore diet. My sugar was always at 99. I wasn't eating sugar. And then I started going back to eating more fruits and vegetables and my taking the berberine, my A1C was 5.2 and it dropped to 4.4 or something like that. Oh, it's great. And then my, my sugar, which was 99 started taking berberine. My sugar's 80, 82 or something. Great. So yeah. unfortunately people interpret that to mean berberine reduces blood sugar. That's not true. Okay. What berberine does is it kills off a lot of bacteria and fungi, thereby reducing endotoxemia that raises blood sugar. So it does indirectly reduce blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C. Oh, resistance. okay. But it's not because it actually reduces blood sugar. It's because it reduces endotoxemia. Oh, my God. But it's, it, it, tells you, it tells us that Michael had SIBO, CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, Right. Likely one or the other or both. Both right. both can occur also. And berberine <clears throat> and some other things are quite effective for reducing that. So that's the first uh, to, to answer Eric's question. First, we have to decide whether you have SIBO, CFO. You can use the air device to map out where in the GI tract microbes are. Sometimes the symptoms are so clear cut, like if you have evidence for fat malabsorption, meaning there's fat droplets in the toilet or your poops float all the time. Those are signs you're not digesting fat. That means microbes are way up high near the duodenum where pancreatic enzymes and bile are, and those microbes are preventing their action, and you're not digesting fats. There are also conditions virtually synonymous with SIBO, like fibromyalgia is virtually always SIBO. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome, the majority have SIBO. Uh, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac, disease. These are almost a very high likelihood of SIBO. Anybody with an autoimmune or neurodegenerative disorder, a lot of diseases, right? Uh, likely wow. to have anybody with fatty liver. There's a minimum 50% chance you have SIBO. And so it's, it's everywhere, by the way. And, you know, I was guilty guys of thinking SIBO was this uncommon rare thing until this came out and, mm. became, and people all around are testing themselves. Oh, it's everywhere. So that's the first step in answer to your question, Eric. But then the second step is we start to restore microbes. And look at like a like a menu at a restaurant. You know, if 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 I walk into a restaurant and the waitress hands me a menu, I don't panic and say, "Oh my god, I can't order all these appetizers, main dishes, side dishes, and desserts." You you look at the menu. I can. I'll have this side. <laughs> <laughs> so same thing with the microbiome, the microbes. You choose if you want this effect restore this microbe. And what, what I do is we ferment it. Usually as yogurt, you can ferment other foods also. Uh, and we ferment in a very specific way. So just to illustrate, if you buy commercial yogurt, uh, which is made with two microbes, typically lactobacillus bulgaris, bulgaris and streptococcus thermophilus, two very dull, not very interesting microbes, by the way, they ferment for four hours. Now, bacterial fermentation means bacteria are going to double. They don't have sexual reproduction like mammals do. It means that one microbe becomes two, two becomes four. They just double. And for rotary, for instance, doubles every four hours. I'm sorry, every three hours uh, at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, commercial yogurt making is a four-hour process. 
that's why there's almost nothing in commercial yogurt. That's why they add those thickeners like gel and gum, xanthan gum, guar gum, etc., to make it seem like there's something of substance in the yogurt. Well, we're going to ferment more like 36 hours, allowing 12 doublings. And when we've run what's called flow cytometry on the yogurt, we've gotten the last time we did it, 262 billion counts of bacteria per half Jeez. cup serving. We consume that rotary yogurt, for instance, and that's the stuff that gives you smoother. The, the ladies go berserk because it gives them smoother skin with reduced wrinkles, accelerated healing, restoration of youthful muscle and strength, preservation of bone density, suppression of appetite, deeper sleep. Uh, what I think we could argue is an age-reversing effect, by the way. So what would you say if someone's allergic to dairy or walnuts or stuff like that? Because, I mean, those are considerations, right? So address the SIBO that caused. Now, dairy, with, with dairy intolerance, particularly lactose intolerance, if you're a child and you're lactose, it could be just genetic. You can't do anything about that except avoid lactose. But a lot of people acquire lactose intolerance as adults. And if that's true, that is virtually 100% SIBO. And likewise, intolerance to FODMAPs, nightshades, histamine-containing foods, all the blood tests. They say, you can't eat. Michael, you can't eat these 37 foods, right? Right, 100%. Mm -hmm. 100%. These are all forms of SIBO. That is, it's the disruption of the microbiome, increased intestinal permeability, endotoxemia. That cause. So if, if I think I'm intolerant, let's say, to, to um, eggplant or to nuts or to lactose, avoiding that food doesn't address the cause. And what, what happens if you have SIBO, 30 feet, trillions of microbes, and you don't do something about it? Over time, you're much more likely to become obese, hypertensive, have coronary disease, have autoimmune diseases, neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, and dementia, uh, intestinal diseases, IBS, uh, ulcerative colitis, colon cancer, diverticular. In other words, the wrong answer would be to avoid that food and then put your head in the sand about the, the cause, SIBO and possibly SIFO. So it's really a value to do. The problem, as you guys know, is you go to John Q. Primary Care. He has no idea what the hell you're talking about. 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. Did you consult Dr. Google again? Exactly. <laughs> it, if, if someone can't, if someone can't, like, you know, if someone doesn't want to um, ferment their own yogurt, right? Is it okay for, to take a probiotic? I found this probiotic because of you, this not particular brand, but I specifically looked for El Ruderi, which I've been on now for about a, a year and a half. And I don't take it every day. I, I go for periods where I'll take it for two, three months, and then I'll stop for a month, and then I'll take it for two, three months. Can I read you what's on here? Because I specifically sure. chose El Ruderi because of a YouTube video that you saw, that you, that you did. I'm going to botch these names. All right. I just want to give you a heads up. I speak like this is like dinosaurs to me. L. Ramnos, Ramonus, L. Bagaricus, L. Plantarnum, L. Paracasi, L. Kasai, L. Gasseri, L. Rotori. I know how to pronounce that. L. Crispatus, L. Helveticus, which I think is a font, if I'm not mistaken. L. Acidophilus, Lactococcus lactis. Be be brave, be breve, be brave, be lactis, be adolescentis, be longum, be infant infantile, be infantis, protococcus penosaurus, pedococcus acidolactici. What? There's one more. There's one more. I just got through all this, bro. You got to give me a second here. And streptococcus thermopolis. I I'm I'm botching these names. And there's an organic prebiotic fiber in here. Does that cover it? So I, I started taking these probiotics, feel great, right? Haven't been sick three years, you know, feeling good. And again, I don't take it every day. I go for months where I take it and then a month or so where I don't. What I just read you, how I botched those names, and it was the L Rotori why I bought that when I saw a YouTube video a few years ago. Does that cover it, what I just read you? Probably. There's a lot of, so probiotics are, are evolving very rapidly, and some of the new wisdom that has not yet been fully implemented by most commercial manufacturers is, you know, if you take that probiotic and we assess your stool for the presence of those microbes, you'd find that they wouldn't stay for more than a few weeks tops. There's something wrong. We don't know. In other words, if mom gave you a microbe 
uh, and you'd have it for a lifetime, or at least for a long, long time. But if you take it as a probiotic, it doesn't take up long-term residence. So there's something lacking. It's probably what my microbiologist friend, Dr. Rollo Cano, calls the lack of a guild or consortium. That is, uh, microbes, like humans, don't live in isolation. They have, like, families or communities that collaborate. So microbe A produces that, something that microbe B needs, and B produces something that microbe C needs. They have these consortia or guilds that collaborate. And, when you, and this is very new stuff. And when commercial probiotics are made, that is not factored in. And so that's why the current probiotics are, are limited. There's also the failure of many manufacturers or retailers to specify the strain of microbe. So to illustrate, so uh, Eric's got E. coli, his family's got E. coli, Michael's got E. coli, I have E. coli. Most humans have several strains of E. coli. But what if you ate lettuce contaminated by cow manure and thereby E. coli? Well, you can die from that E. coli. Uh, so same species, E. coli, different strain. So strain can can literally be a life-death difference. Not usually, but it can be. Right. So, and most commercial probiotics don't even tell you the strain. So for instance, there's a strain right. of lactobacillus rhamnosus uh, uh, that really works in abbreviating diarrhea after an antibiotic. Most probiotics don't have that strain. And right. so you really can't tell unless the strain is, this is getting better. The manufacturers are smartening up and they're, they're getting better. The, the most important thing, after getting rid of the things that disrupt the microbiome, minimizing antibiotics, drinking water that you filtered to remove chlorine that disrupts the mucus barrier, getting off drugs that disrupt the microbiome, like anti-inflammatory drugs, like ibuprofen, statin drugs disrupt the microbiome, avoiding synthetic sweeteners like aspartame, uh, avoiding emulsifying agents like uh, carboxymethylcellulose and polysorbate 80 and ice cream and salad dressing. People say, oh, it's too much rubber. Just go back to real food. Eat an avocado, eat eggs. Use olive oil. Just eat real food. Don't buy the garbage that are in the, inner, in the inner aisles at the grocery store. So that's a good start. But the most important thing probably is fermented foods. That is this thing that most of us abandoned ever since the advent of home refrigeration in 1927. You know, if we went, if we talked to our great grandparents, they'd say, oh, yeah, we fermented food all the time. That's how we kept food edible through the winter. And we fermented all kinds of stuff. And that has to make a return. It could be kimchi, uh, kefir, sauerkraut, ferment other fermented veggies. Sourdough. I mean, do you, do you condone sourdough bread if it's from? Isn't that technically fermented bread? Sourdough. It is, but you're baking it, so you kill all the organisms in it. Interesting. And of course, it's got all the evils of wheat and grains, like glide so, and drive opioid. What about um, uh, high meat? You mean fermented meat? Yeah. Uh, like, wonderful. So, in fact, the cup, some of the microbes that Michael mentioned, like Pediococcus pentaceous and the Pediococcus uh, acetylactosi. You, you, you pronounce it much better than like, I do. I'll, I'll <laughs> see YouTubers that take um, that will like put liver in a jar and ferment raw liver in a yeah. jar and ferment it for yeah. three weeks, three months, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's like the ultimate in um, in gut health, right? Yeah, I've never done that specifically, but yes, you can do that. Uh, right. In fact, it's more widely done in Europe and Asia. Almost nobody does it in, in the U.S. No. But I think we need to return to those kinds of things. Some of the most potent probiotic microbial species are in fermented foods, like the Pediococcus pentaceous. There's another really cool organism called um, Luganostoc mesenteroides. That, and these are huge benefits. They reduce inflammation. They antagonize the pathogens like the microbes of SIBO. They reduce colon cancer risk. They reduce endotoxemia. They reduce blood pressure. They reduce blood sugar. I mean, so many of the things that are addressed in healthcare with nasty, expensive drugs with lots of side effects are better addressed. And that's what I love about the microbiome. It's showing us that a restoration of something close to a healthy microbiome yields astounding effects, weight loss, Drop in blood sugar, drop in blood pressure, shrink your waist, increase testosterone, increase growth hormones, smoother skin, greater strength, greater muscle, improve. I, 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 this is not in the book. It's some, something relatively new. I was playing with lactobacillus brevis. That's one of the microbes that Michael mentioned. 
Well, brevis you can find in some fermented foods, fermented meats, as well as uh, fermented sauerkraut and kimchi. Usually not present, but sometimes present. Well, brevis is interesting. It has all kinds of wonderful effects, reduction of blood sugar, blood pressure, all that kind of stuff. But it also is unique in that it pr produces something called phenylethylamine, which is uh, a nootropic. That is, it's something that makes you a little bit smarter, a little more clever, a little bit better memory for about four or five hours. <laughs> Your brain's not healthier, but you're smart. But it's also, so most nootropics do not make your brain healthier. They just make you a little bit smarter for a few hours, then you're back to usual. But there's also something called neurotrophic effects. These are things that make your brain healthier because they increase the number of brain cells. They increase the connections, the synaptic richness between brain cells, and increase growth factors like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Well, this phenylethyl, phenylethylamine is both a nootropic, makes you smarter, and a neurotrophic factor, at least in experimental models, because it causes increased BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And lactobacillus brevis produces. So I thought, and this is just a playing around kind of a thing. So this is an anecdote, but we did this a few dozen people. We made yogurt, 36 hours, really high back to hundreds of billions of counts with lactobacillus brevis. I got it, by the way, from a beer-making supply house. <laughs> Unbelievable. Some, some home brewers will use that, use that microbe, to, I, I'm told, to increase bitterness. So I made yogurt with it, consumed half cup a day. And I think, and some other people think, uh, a little smarter for a few hours and a little happier. Interesting. Presumably I from the phenylethylamine. You know, I had to write a piece on skin health um, for this. Uh, I was doing this consulting work. And that's not my area. So I knew I'd have to really muscle, sit down and think it through, refer to the studies because it's not my area. I, I did not look for, I thought it was going to take me, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours of hard work to get this thing written. I sat down one night, 8 p.m., glass of wine, banged it out in 45 minutes. I stood up and I thought, what the heck just happened? It's, the li it's like the limitless pill, <laughs> was it, right? Was it, the, was it the wine? Is Is alcohol okay? In all of this? Yeah, you know, it's a mixed bag of things. So uh, I, I like a, a couple of glasses of wine, but it does. Uh, the alcohol is something of an invitation for fungal overgrowth. Right. But then we have all the, the polyphenols in wine that are actually nutrition to, to bugs. So there's about, plus and minus. What about coffee? Um, there may be modest effects from the, um, the uh, polyphenols. Right. So, I mean, I, you, we, we don't want to overstate the benefits of coffee because that, if it was so powerful, people who drank coffee wouldn't get sick. But, of course, they do. Right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you have in your book here, you said green bananas and plantains. And then, surprisingly, this was really interesting, potatoes, right? And, like, when I think of Dr. Davis, I think of, like, you know, zero carb, right? Like, cut out the carbs, you know, especially the wheat, et cetera, et cetera. But then you said cooked potatoes are high in sugar and low in fiber, but raw potatoes – are you advocating that that's something that people and like what benefit would that get for someone that it would eat a raw potato? So, you know, everything I say and do, I, the test for me, whether something makes sense, I always ask, did primitive people that programmed our evolutionary code, did they do this? And they right. did. So right. if you watch, for instance, a video of the Hadza in Tanzania or the Maasai in Kenya or the Malawi in Eastern Africa or the matzahs or the Yanomami in South America, you'll see them digging in the dirt. They use a bone or a stone or an ax, whatever, and they'll dig for roots and tubers. That's the behavior we're mimicking. But Eric tells me he doesn't like going out in the, into the forest or jungle to dig for <laughs> roots and tubers anymore. The ground is frozen a lot of the year, northern climates, right? Mm -hmm. He's got better things to do. Right? right. So how do we mimic that behavior with things that are available to us? So raw white potato is rich in inulin. So are you uh, saying inulin. to eat like a raw, a raw potato, like an apple? You could do that. That's you can you also have. finally chop it or, or uh, spiralize it or cut it up in some way, and put it in the salads. Some people like to make it like little French fries and dip it in salt. So that's one thing. Green unripe bananas, likewise rich in inulin. Right. These are, these are fibers that nourish bacteria. They see, we can ingest those things. If you ingest that raw white potato, you can't digest it. You'll poop it out. Right. But bacteria can digest it. 
and they take the inulin from raw white potato and convert it to all kinds of stuff that has beneficial effects on you. Uh, mediators like butyrate that reduce blood sugar, reduce blood pressure, reduce triglycerides, lessen fatty liver, facilitate weight loss, uh, better dreams, deeper sleep. So the microbes are really a crucial factory of factors that support your health. And here we are as a society dropping bombs into them in the form of antibiotics, drugs, and uh, food additives. And so- Go ahead, Eric. Is it all just come back to food? Should food be thy medicine? Uh, a lot of it, but because we've done such damage to the microbiome, uh, we also have to purpose, like, like Michael's taking the probiotic, uh, fermented foods would be, of course, a way to get this stuff through food. Uh, you can do it with a probiotic. One thing you don't want to do is take a probiotic and not address the fermented foods. There's a very important study out of Stanford by a husband-wife team, Erica and Justin Sonnenberg. They've, done, they've been very prolific in publishing uh, evidence on the microbiome. One of the things they did was they compared in a bunch of people consumption of prebiotic fibers, which all of us think are pretty important because they nourish microbes and fermented foods, frequent consumption of fermented foods. To everyone's surprise, the frequent consumption of fermented foods was hands down far more beneficial wow. in reestablishing a healthy microbiome. The curious thing though was, so let's say we eat some kimchi, which has a whole bunch of great microbes like leuconostoc mesenteroides and pedicoccus penthesaceus. We eat those microbes. The microbes that emerge in your microbiome are not those species. They're altogether new species and no one understands how that happened. Are they latent and just quiescent or did you acquire them and you're more receptive from other people, from your environment? Nobody knows, but there's something very unique about the consumption of fermented foods that allows the emergence of entirely new microbes that weren't there before. What, what is your take on digestive enzymes? What is your... Um you know what because i i didn't see much about digestive enzymes in super gut so if somebody has an obvious cause of pancreatic dysfunction like they had pancreatitis right. or they had a gallstone lodged in the pancreatic duct or a, a blunt injury to that area of the body um that would be a clear cause uh telling you that your pancreas does not produce enzymes properly so that'd be one reason another reason okay. would be SIBO that is bacteria are interfering up in the duodenum with the action of pancreatic enzymes. You, and you can sometimes overcome that with pancreatic enzymes. But you, what you really should do, of course, is address the SIBO. Right. Aside from that, I know of no evidence that, I know people do these things and they say they, they work, but I think what's happening is a lot of issues have to be re-examined in light of this new evidence with the microbiome. In other words, if you had SIBO and had bacteria up into the duodenum, stomach, et cetera, right and you can't digest foods because those bacteria block pancreatic enzymes, you will feel better with pancreatic enzymes, but it won't get rid of the SIBO. Right, okay. Yeah, because yeah, my, my, the alternative doc said, take digestive enzymes, it's gonna make you feel great. And I take it before a meal with the berberine and I, you know, I, you know, knocking on wood, there's no, no constipation, no, Dr. you know. Dr. Davis, does Dr. Davis have cheat days? <laughs> uh, no. Well, so one, so uh, you may have noticed that people who are wheat and grain free, if they go off program, they get quite ill. Right. So right. this happens like I go to a restaurant and you say, hey, is there any wheat flour or cornstarch or anything in the gravy or the sauce? And I'll say no. And of course, there are, sometimes is. Right. And then uh, people get sick with diarrhea, bloating, uh, excessive gas, skin rashes. Uh, emotional effects like anxiety, panic attacks, anger in guys. Um, if you had relief from some condition, let's say your rheumatoid arthritis receded with wheat and grain elimination or your psoriasis uh, receded with, with the diet, it can come back and it can persist for months. And I've seen that happen many times. So those of us who are wheat and grain free, that component of this, uh, you really can't get away easily, most of us, with going off. Mm -hmm. Another thing to know is I, I learned this in practice and it was consistent with the science when I was practicing cardiology. And one of the things I used to try to do is let's say Michael goes in for a CT heart scan for Carnard calcium score. That's how we detect. Zero. We spoke about this last time. I was zero. Yeah. Well, it was 300, heaven forbid, right? Right. Heaven, yeah. um, 
and what we look for causes. And the most common cause is not high cholesterol. That's garbage. That's nonsense. That's big pharma bullshit. It's an excess of small LDL particles and some other things, insulin resistance, inflammation, vitamin D deficiency, thyroid dysfunction, blah, blah, blah. But the driver, main driver of coronary atherosclerosis is an excess of small LDL particles. One thing to know about small LDL particles, I did this thousands and thousands of times. Let's say you're wheat and grain free, low carb. Your small LDL drops from say 1800 nanomoles per liter, particle count per volume to zero. But then you say, ah, what the hell? I'm going to have a slice of pizza on Friday. One stinking slice. Small LDL goes up to 1100, something like that, for about a week. That's because the small LDL particle, its unique shape and conformation, the liver does not recognize it and does not get cleared from your bloodstream. So one indulgence per week of anything that provokes formation of small LDL particles is sufficient to give you 52 weeks a year of increased cardiovascular risk. So for that reason and some other reasons, it's, but you know, it doesn't mean your life is going to be a life of deprivation and cardboard, you know, so Thanksgiving just passed and I had turkey and gravy, biscuits, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie, all kinds of great stuff. And uh, by the way, people who do this, they go through Thanksgiving or Christmas or other major holiday, uh, and they don't gain weight. In fact, many people continue to lose weight if they were on that path already. So it's it's not a life of deprivation. It's a life of freedom, though you'll be eating differently than the obese type 2 diabetic in Walmart. Right. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric. Did you want to ask a question about statins or anything? Or No, no. I wanted to ask more about diet. You mentioned that you don't gain weight. Um, is it? Do you watch what you eat? Do you count calories? Do you Or do you just you know, intuitively at this point now. Yeah, I, th- I think it's safe to say that most of us do well just following hunger signals, but you will find that hunger becomes, hunger, by the way, feels different, Eric. So in a grain eater, we're getting to the back in the wheat belly world, in a grain eater who consumes the gliden-derived, the gliden protein that yields gliden-derived opioid peptide, which is a very potent appetite stimulant. These are the so-called hangry people, right? These are the people who shove you out of the way at the food bar, who go to the restaurant, place an order, and they're angry and so impatient because they're so hungry. They're also the same people who eat a big heaping bowl of pasta, and they're filled to bursting, but they're still hungry. That's the gliden-derived opioid peptide effect. So once you get rid of that, and even better, restore lactobacillus roteri, which causes oxytocin release, you'll find that, like today, I ate my first meal at one in the afternoon. So you're fasting. You you and you and you do a fasting lifestyle. You could call it that. Right. It's, I like to call it just following your appetite signals. <laughs> right. right. Or right. you could you might eat let's say three eggs and some sausage. Let's say seven a.m. You probably won't be hungry till dinner time. Right. In fact, right. if you ate lunch, you're like, I can't eat. I, I I'm not hungry at all. So hunger is a very, very different experience. And by the way, it doesn't feel the same. I, I feel hunger, by the way, as restlessness. I find I'm working. It's maybe four o'clock in the afternoon. I just, I last ate at 7 a.m. And you're a little restless. And you're like, what's that all about? Ah, oh, it's time to eat. Time to eat, right. Very, which makes sense. You know, if, if Eric was a hunter-gatherer and he needed to kill something or find some berries or nuts or dig in the dirt, uh, restlessness would trigger activity, the quest for food. So that makes a lot more sense, I think, than this abnormal, desperate feeling that modern people get because they're grain consumers and now lack, lack missiles rotary. So when does super gut come out? February 1st. So just another couple of months or so, uh, so what I, what I tell people, I, I know that I gave you guys a lot to think about, but it, it's like that restaurant. It's like that menu. If you want smoother skin, less wrinkles, make El Roderai, yogurt or other fermented food. If you want to shrink your waist, think about lactobacillus gasseri, the BNR17 strain that shrinks your waist, even if you don't change your diet or increase exercise. What if you want fast recovery from strenuous exercise? My daughter's a pro tennis player and she had a concussion about two, three years ago and she fell off her ranking. Well, she comes back a year later when she doesn't no longer has migraine headaches from her concussion. 
she's got to go through the uh, uh, qualifying rounds, which is every day grueling. It's a grueling schedule, three hours a day or so, 90-degree heat. You win once, you're exhausted, got to do it again next day. If you win, got to do it again. And if you win, then you end the main draw exhausted. Right. Well, she's on bacillus coagulants, which reduces muscle injury during strenuous that. For the last two years, she's had no muscle aches, even really? after qualifying rounds. Yeah, so a real big advantage for athletes and people who engage in heavy or strenuous work. Or how about bifidobacter infantis, the EVC001 strain marketed as the Avivo, E-V-I-V-O product. I have no relationship with these products. Right. Uh, restored to an infant has huge effects. 90% of babies don't have this microbe. When you restore it, it's more likely to sleep through the night. It's more likely to take longer naps. Its bowel movements are cut in half from an average of four to two. So half as many diaper changes for mom and dad. They have less colic. And as older children, seven, eight, nine, less asthma, less autoimmune disease, less type one diabetes, and have higher IQs. In other words, that one microbe restored to a child changes its entire life. It changes behavior, changes Jesus intelligence Christ. and performance for an entire lifetime. Now I tell ladies, hey, so you could give this microbe, that's what the company says, mix it in with breast milk and feed it to your baby. Uh, I tell, no, no, no. How about mom makes yogurt out of it or other fermented food? She takes it so that when time comes for delivery, she confers the microbe onto her baby via passage through the birth canal or through breastfeeding. You can still give it to your baby, but it's better when it's delivered in the context of the mother's microbiome, as flawed as it might be. And that the reason why this works is because bifidobacteria infantis, here's an odd paradox in human physiology. When a baby breastfeeds, it's unable to digest what are called human milk oligosaccharides, very important components. A baby can't digest it. It's diarrhea from it. Unless it's got bifidobacteria infantis, then it can digest those oligosaccharides and thereby neurodevelopment and growth is enhanced. I got to tell you, Dr. Davis, I, like you think it stops at wheat belly, right? Like, just give up wheat. You're going to be good. And then you literally leveled up the entire game with this book. I, really and truly, what you're talking about is absolutely fascinating. You literally leveled up the entire health industry on focusing on, on gut health. You well, know, thank you, Michael. But, you know, it is so endlessly fascinating yeah. and fun and so powerful. It really we're is. We're talking about smoothing your skin, age reversal, brightening our mood, reducing right. recovery time, you know, enhancing the health of newborns and children. I mean, these are huge effects. And you know what? It's a hell of a lot of fun, too. Right. These things. Last and, thing before and, you go. Oh, Eric, give me one second. Last okay. thing before you go, because I read it. I'm I'm loving the supplement world. I love it. I research supplements all the time. Curcumin. Um, you know, I have I have a lot of allergies to different types of foods. I actually found out last week I'm doing endpoint allergy testing and I tested really high for carrots, right? Every time I would eat a carrot, I would get congested and everything. And I tested really high for it. But curcumin, uh, is that something is it that's derived from a food, correct? From term the turmeric root. The turmeric yep. root. And what family is turmeric in? Oh, gee, I'd have to look that one up. I'm Michael, not, okay. it's like you're testing him. What are you doing? No, no, here? I'm not. Because I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> I want to take curcumin for myself because it's incredible, you know, anti-inflammatory effects. You know, I've heard a lot of YouTubers talk about it. But I was curious to know what your thoughts were on, um, on uh, curcumin because I know it's in the book, you know. Well, the, there's a curious – this applies to many things. So uh, same occurs with berberine as well as green tea catechins and polyphenols. If right. you take 100 milligrams of curcumin, you poop it out. You poop out over 99 milligrams of it. Right. Yet, it's clear it has effects, like reducing knee pain and swelling, reducing C measures of inflammation like C-reactive protein. Well, how in the world does it do that? Right. If you absorb almost nothing, it's become clear because uh, curcumin works in the intestinal and the GI tract. It has antibacterial effects. It has antifungal effects. And it also is a wonderful strengthening agent for the mucus and intestinal barrier. So it reduces endotoxemia. Right. Berberine also. When you take berberine, you poop almost all of it out. Right. How does it work? Through the microbiome and through the intestinal barriers. So uh, yes. we'll use it in the midst of trying to get rid of SIBO, SIFO, 
or if there's evidence for endotoxemia, like these right. various. One thing I, I tell people is we don't know if it's safe to take these things for a long time, though. In other words, what right. if Eric says, I've been taking penicillin for the last 15 years? Well, not a good idea. Right? Right. So right. anything with antimicrobial properties, you got to be careful with. You don't want to be taking it for a long, long time because we okay. don't know what happens. Do you generate resistance? Does right. some other weird thing happen? No one knows. No one's done those studies. And so we use them kind of only when needed, uh, but they are effective. I'm very grateful that we have access to non-pharmacologic ways to address the micro. Let me tell you another thing that we've been doing. So I'm not real fond of, you can use berberine and curcumin. You can even use a conventional antibiotic like rifaximin to get rid of SIBO. Mm -hmm. But I, here's, here's something. What's the likelihood if you had SIBO now and Michael takes that probiotic that will eradicate his SIBO? Not very good chance because it wasn't created for that purpose, right? Right. So I asked a different set of questions. I asked, can we choose microbes that colonize the upper GI tract? That's where SIBO occurs. And our vigorous producers are what are called bactericins. These are natural antibiotics produced by bacteria effective against the species of SIBO. So I picked three, lactobacillus gasseri, the BNR17 strain, right. two strains of lactobacillus rotori, and a strain of bacillus coagulants. I made yogurt with all three co-fermented, 36 hours, so you get a few hundred billion counts. Consume now about, this is very preliminary, about 20 people have normalized their breath hydrogen gas on the yogurt. I call it SIBO yogurt. We have yet to prove that formally and do it in larger numbers, but so far it's looking like this yogurt formulation gets rid of SIBO. If you, so have, any, no, if you have no gallbladder, I'm sorry, Eric, uh, because the, um, I knew a person that was taking that air thing and it was very high and they likened it because they didn't have a gallbladder because they couldn't break down the fats. Is that normal or no? You want that thing low even without a gallbladder. It's it's much more likely that they had SIBO that caused the gallstones in the first place. Right. Here's an odd thing. If you let's say that person had their gallstones examined, you'd find them filled with stool microbes, stool microbes. Well, the duodenum, that's where the gall gallbladder hooks to the intestines. Yeah. Duodenum is 24 feet up from the, from the colon. What are stool organisms doing in the gallbladder? SIBO, right? They have ascended. The E. colizing Klebsiellas of the world have ascended, gotten to this guy's or this person's gallbladder, infected the stones. And that's one of the reasons why people get symptomatic gallstones not just lodging in the bile duct, but also because they're they're, they're infected. Uh, and so it's much more likely they had SIBO, had their gallbladder taken out, no one bothered to look for the SIBO. You said you had 23 people that you helped with that yogurt that you made, with the SIBO yogurt. Are you taking on clients like that? Or is that like a trial that you're doing? Or is that part of your clinic? Like, how does all that work? This this is just informal. So we ha I have something called the it's currently called the inner circle. It's it used to be called the undoctored inner circle. I you know I've written so many books and have so many websites and I'm consolidating everything. We call it Dr. Davis's in infinite health inner circle. <laughs> mm -hmm. and so there's a bunch of people uh, who we, we collaborate. So every Wednesday night, for instance, we have a two way like this, me and 75, 80, 90, 100 people. And we talk about these kinds of things. I'll say, all right, has anybody tried to see Bill Yogi? I'll say, yes, I did. And I normalized from a 9.8 on average down to 1.3 or something like that. But it's informal, Eric, we have clinical trials being uh, uh, conducted that answer other questions, but not this specific one. This I'm, I'm, I'm debating how to do this formally because it's, it's really tricky to use a yogurt in a clinical trial because it's so variable in composition the infinite inner circle um can anyone join this inner circle or you you, you it's select? a membership website so it's a paid membership website because we put a ton of there's a ton of these kinds of discussions in there right but we talk about SIBO yogurt um we talk about other fermentation experiments like that like mrs brevis that i think makes us happier and smarter <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, right. as well as other issues you know food and nutrition and diet and consider new ideas. But as I mentioned before, the, the litmus test is that, is this consistent with human adaptation? Because if you're serving an intrinsic human need, your expectations are far greater than trying to treat something. 
you know, because that's what they do in healthcare. They treat things. So in diabetes, for instance, type 2 diabetes, you have a high blood sugar, say 160. So they give you metformin and biota injections and insulin injections. And all these things cost money and have terrible side effects. Insulin injections causes massive weight gain. It's not uncommon gaining 25 to 50 pounds in the first year you're on insulin because it causes weight accumulation, fat accumulation. Uh, and you are not uh, freed from kidney failure, dementia, increased cancer risk, cardiovascular disease, and amputations. You're not protected by taking those drugs. But what if instead we address the factors in modern people that allow type 2 diabetes and high blood sugars to emerge? Let's get rid of the foods that raise high bl blood sugars, wheat grains and sugars. Let's normalize insulin resistance, supplement vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, magnesium, get your thyroid in order with iodine, start starting with iodine, and then address the microbiome and reduce endotoxemia. And then blood sugar is normalized and you're no longer diabetic. And you have no risk or, or much reduced risk for peripheral vascular disease, amputations, blindness, kidney failure, cardiovascular disease, you've erased the disease and all its excess risk. So which is better, treating high blood sugar or addressing the fact that allow high blood sugar to emerge in the first place? You, you see the difference, a profound difference. And that's what we're doing likewise with the microbiome. We're trying to restore the microbiome to something closer to the natural state. We speak to mainstream doctors too, and the mainstream doctors say, Back in the 50s and 60s before statins, people were dropping dead of heart attacks at, you know, at 50, 60 years old, right? They said, now on statins, I have golfers living, dropping dead at 90, right? And there's no issues. What do you say to that, Dr. Davis? What, yeah, what, what's, what's the alternative take on it? Statins have made my colleagues stupid. <laughs> they drink the Kool-Aid of Big Pharma for this crock of bullshit that Big Pharma paid for. This is nonsense. The big difference is not smoking. So there's far fewer smokers now. So a lot of those people who had coronary disease where it was from smoking. So thankfully, people, most people have given up smoking. That's a big plus. Interesting. This idea that statins prolong life like this is just simply not true. Now, you'll hear this from the statin industry and the people who support their industry and studies. Things like, oh, uh, statins reduce heart attack by 36 to 55 percent. That's not true. What they're telling you. So imagine... Michael invents a drug, and in his clinical studies, 100 people who take a placebo, there's two heart attacks or two cancers or whatever. People on the drug, there's one heart attack or cancer. That's called a 50% reduction. Right. Yeah, which is nonsense, of course. You, you can't do that in the stock market. You can't do that, but they do it in healthcare all the time. It's a, it's a marketing tool. And so, but the real tragedy of statin drugs is that they, it's made my colleagues so comfortable just dispensing statin drugs that reduce heart attack risk by maybe 1% over five years, best case scenario. Right. It, it causes them to ignore the real causes of coronary disease. Could they be detrimental, statins? Well, they absolutely are detrimental. There's no question about that. So you How so? How so? So one of the effects is a huge increase in type 2 diabetes, probably from the change in the microbiome. So taking a statin drug, let's say you're a slender, uh, physically active person that's healthy, and we give you a statin. Over time, your microbiome looks like that of an obese type 2 diabetic. And it pushes you closer to being an obese type 2 diabetic. That's why there's a lot more diabetes in people who take statin drugs. And my colleagues will say stupid things like, well, that's the price you pay for the reduction in cardiovascular risk. Well, let's remember that the, the, the decrease in cardiovascular risk is massively exaggerated. It's, it's, almost, it's almost zero. But the real tragedy is that it took everybody's attention away from the real cause of coronary disease, an excess of small LDL particles, what are called postprandial, after eating lipoprotein distortions. Um, Vitamin D deficiency, iodine deficiency, and subclinical hypothyroidism, kind of low-grade hypothyroidism, big risk factor, endotoxemia of SIBO and dysbiosis, uh, magnesium deficiency, omega-3 fatty acid deficiency. So it took everybody's attention off the real factors that cause heart disease, and everybody's just focused on, 
so statin drugs are as ridiculous as a low fat, low saturated fat diet, which we all know is garbage. Non, it's nonsense. It came from deeply flawed science. That's wildly outdated. And it's, just, it's shocking to me that the American Heart Association still endorses studies from the late 1950s as evidence for their low fat diet. They did great. They, they eradicated diabetes in the last 50 years. They did amazing. <laughs> they did fantastic. Isn't they did amazing? it. They, there's no more cancer and heart attacks. There's no more diabetes. They they did it by by giving the, the low fat. Listen, diet. everybody. If you all want to learn more, check out Dr. Davis's book Wheat Belly. Check out Undoctored. Visit his website. What's your website, um, Dr. Davis? So we're shifting everything towards drdavisinfinitehealth.com. Kind of okay. mouthful, but uh, it works. Uh, and this we'll, book. One of the things that's happening, you know, the book has a lot of new ideas in it. As you guys know, like if you want this effect, make this microbe or make this yogurt, if you want like that. But there's also new stuff and that's where you can get the, the, the newest stuff. Like I didn't talk about lactobacillus brevis and the potential nootropic and mood elevating effects. That's something we talk about in the new website. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This book is fascinating, Dr. Davis, and I recommend oh, everyone you. listening, please Dr. Davis knows exactly what he's talking about. Super gut. Um, thank you for coming on again. You have this is your forum, Dr. Davis. We're gonna change it to Oaken slash Davis Bros. Davis is officially an Oaken bro. <laughs> he's a bro. Really, thank, truly, thank, thank you. And please continue doing your great work. Thank you. It's not coming from major media, right? It's up to us to broadcast these ideas of health. Absolutely. Everything on TikTok is uh, it's calorie counting. You just got to just calorie count. And you're going to lose weight. And you're going to feel great. And it's going to be no more issues. Eat the yeah. cinnamon toast crunch. It's low calorie. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate. You know, it's all going to come out in the wash at some point. Everybody, please like, subscribe and share this show. Check out uh, Dr. William Davis, uh, his books on Amazon and check out his website. We appreciate everybody tuning in and we will see you next time. Hang on one second, Dr. Davis. We're going to sign off. Everyone like subscribe, leave comments down below. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.